Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero. Thanks for listening to The Tour Coach. These are the players, coaches, experts, stories, and insights from my work on the PGA Tour at my retreats or my downtown teaching center in Mobile, Alabama. My goal is to shed light and share insights from the people who I've gotten to know and meet working on the PGA Tour and teach it through my career. And I hope this helps all of us play, coach, and teach better golf. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review and take a look at our new Dew Sweepers YouTube channel or the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, where I've taken some time to share videos of help from my teachings, travels, and journeys. So here we are, and this is a beautiful back deck of Trump Doral. We got the American flag right there. Uh, we got a great group in from Connecticut, Philadelphia, Georgia. Got Wayne Flint here to my left. Todd Green kind of back behind me. We got Dr. Greg Carton, Julio Vegas. We got Dr. Scott Lynn, and we got my boy Kevin Kirk sitting over here. He'll be the smart sounding one. Um, and so the purpose of the first day today, Kev, you weren't part of this, but I think it kind of would lend itself into a good one, was talking about how I think one of the things, I think people have this idea that the best players in the world do stuff a lot different or more difficult than what players, than what that they do. And I said, I don't know that, that they do stuff a lot different. I think that they pay way more attention to detail and I think they are way more structured and way more refined and focused on what they work on. Whereas I think that regular, I use regular golfers, but club level golfers, go to the range and they're just hitting trying to fix the ball and they don't have plans and they don't have structure and then each time they go to putt practice putting they do a different thing each time and I told the story about every time I'd go to the Bears club I'd see Justin Thomas for six years doing the same three damn drills and he's one of the best players in the world and so from my experience the best players in the world tend to find the few things that they know that work and they stick with them so that's kind of where I was going to go with this now that I got us rolling so I'll start with you and get your thoughts on this and we're going to kind of go into the saber metrics and the stuff and I want Greg to talk a little bit about it and Scott and everybody kind of chip in yeah thanks Tony super glad to to be here with with you guys and I I I do think that you start kind of looking at coaching and kind of what it's really all about at the end of the day, it's really about being able to, to make move the needle. How are you going to move the needle? And there's, you know, the problem with it we have in golf is that there's so many, it's so distracting. There's so many things, that you know, data points that we can kind of point at, but a lot of them don't move the needle. And so you start kind of looking at, okay, from, from a coaching perspective, to your, to your point, the best players in the world do have the, the capacity to be able to look through all the data points and say, okay, these are the things that move, that move the needle for me. I'm going to pay really close attention to that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think in coaching, sometimes that gets lost. There's a lot of it's. There's very easy to kind of look at look at a data point and say, you know, something that I'm concerned about that. But the question is, is it or not? Is it or not? Is it will it or will it not move the needle? And if it doesn't move the needle, then it probably doesn't require much attention. And so, you know, I think that where we kind of one of the things that we kind of got to is, you know, we, we started adopting, you know, some of the saber metrics over from from that was kind of that we if anybody got to see, you know, that. That, fam- that famous Moneyball. That f- famous movie Moneyball. You know, he, all he got, to, he didn't have any money, and he got to the point where all he was concerned about was, can they get on base and can they score runs? If they can't do that, I'm not interested. And I think at the end of the day, we can, we as coaches and players have to have the capacity to, to look at things and say, okay, there's a lot of data here, but what am I going to do here that's actually going to move the needle? What what can actually I can do to kind of actually make a difference? It is player dependent. You know, there are, are certain players that want very specific things, and for them, moving that needle is only taking care of that. 
And so as coaches and, you know, as people in, 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 that, that work in this space, I think we have to be conscious of that, but also have the capacity to kind of look at a data, a, a big set of data and figure out, okay, what is it this, what is the, you know, what is it that I'm looking at and what's going to move the needle? I agree with that. And I think that's one of the challenges. So we have more science in the world or in the world of golf instruction we've ever had. And we like we have Scott here with us this week, which Scott does a bunch of these with me. And I think one of the things is Scott and I have worked together, like he has eight gazillion points of information on that computer. <laughs> and uh, when he, especially the dual force plates, right? Like, but he tells you, like he knows the stuff I'm looking for. And I normally preface it when a player gets on it and say, here's the things I'm looking for. Here's the thing I'm trying to get to do. And he just hones in on that piece of, data whereas i think one of the problems not a problem but where people run in with all this technology is they feel like they put somebody on a dual force plate and they feel like they've got to read the student every single piece of information that comes out of that i mean i think that's i mean and i think that's where we do a lot of stuff kevin you're joining us next month for young coaches and developing teachers and i think i think that's that's one of the things that's hard for young teachers i had a young teacher the other day call me i didn't know him he asked for advice and he had said he'd been to TPI, had been like two levels. He'd been certified in two other things. And he went through all this stuff and he said that he was having trouble because he felt like he was giving worse golf lessons. And I told him the same thing that Wayne and Hank told me early on was like, I needed to write down and organize the things that I thought were important and then just stick to those for a while. I think all the data that's out there is hard for young teachers and hard for people because I don't think people are very good at organizing it and they just start spewing things out, right? Open something stick. Yeah, before we shift gears, and I, I want to talk to that point, I'm going to make, make sure that, you know, I would love to hear from kind of some of the other guys here. But, but what I will say is that the thing that I appreciate about Scott Lynn and, and guys like Mark Sweeney and, and guys that have been around the space for a long time that are, are really solid scientists, they also have the capacity to kind of look at it, listen to the situation, and then be able to deliver that one thing's going mm-hmm. to make a difference. I mean, I watched Scott do it yesterday with, a, with a, you know, several golfers and a, and a baseball player to be able to kind of look at the information, listen to the guy talk, and then to be able to pick one thing and give it to him. It's going to make, that is going to move the needle. And I that's think that's it, right? Teaching. Well, that is, that's the art, right? Is the, And, you know, the only way that you can kind of get there is get enough saddle time. Mm-hmm. I think if you kind of look at, at uh, listen to books like, from like, I love Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. You know, he talked about people that have the capacity to do exactly what, what Scott did yesterday, to be able to look at something read it and give you that one thing you know that's actually going to make a difference and i think that but the only way you can get there according to, to malcolm gladwell and the people who study you know peak performance and coaching is you have to have a lot of saddle time you got to just be in there for a long long time i mean i don't know how much saddle time scott i'm guessing twenty thousand hours minimum probably yeah, at this know. point <laughs> you know i think tony you've been on the team thirty thousand hours probably teaching i'm sure i'm over thirty thousand and so you start kind of looking at people, part of it is wisdom. Part of it is people yeah. that just have enough saddle time to be able to recognize the situation and say, I've seen this pattern before. I've it, said this a million times. I always go back to this. And since he died, I probably say more of his stuff than I used to. But Hank used to have the saying. He told me one time, because I, I was always wanting to know the answer to the test question, right? Like I was thinking there was this answer that you had to have, right? And he told me one time, he said, you can't get... 10 years of experience in one day less than 10 years. 
right? right. And that's the same. I mean, that's, so somebody that's been teaching three years isn't going. I mean, no matter how smart they are, they're not going to have encountered as many things as you have, or as many things as you have, Scott. Right? It's just, it's see, just the way it is. So you're talking about mastery. All the mastery models would suggest that a minimum ten thousand hours. I mean, there's there's arguments to be made. Okay, that that can happen quicker. And I've, I've been around. I've been through all those discussions. But let's just say it takes ten thousand hours. All right. That's three hours a day, 330 days a year for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a serious amount of time. So I do think that the people that, that, that impress me as I watch them, if you ask them about their background, they've, they've, they've done the time. Mm-hmm. Every one of them. Doc, I want you to talk a little. Come on, you could talk a little bit about, you, about stats. stats. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I, I think what's interesting from my perspective, contrarian here. being in the, in the mental space, is the expectation management. So kids will come to me and say, Played great, I hit the ball great, but I missed like three ten footers. Right? So, oh, you missed three ten footers. Well, why don't you dig into the stats a little bit? Let's take a look at, you know, what the best players in the world do, and say, hey, maybe what you did wasn't so bad, right? So, working back from the top, taking the stats, and it's great that we have access to all the stats from the best players in the world, and we can use those to help guide younger players or amateurs' expectations about what it means to play well. That, for me, that's what I've used stats for in talking to guys that I work with, young kids or developing kids or amateurs or anybody. Let's take a look at what the best players in the world do in terms of stats. And and a lot of them revolve around putting because that's an easy one to sort of mark. Um, So maybe you didn't putt so bad. I'm going to ask Scott talked about the one thing, moving the needle. I know he does that well. I always talk about simplicity. And I I try to not have a student leave a weekend. I tried to, I told him I don't want you to leave with more than three things you're working on. And then, and Doc's, Greg's big thing is about freedom, right? And so I think the less you have to think about, the more freedom you have. Do you think that's accurate, Doc? Yeah, it's hard to say the less you have to, or the less that registers in terms of what you or what you're trying to accomplish. But I think the more things people are trying to do, the less freedom. Yeah, well, if a kid goes out and of course says, I'll have to make 80% of my five footers today, that's a tough way to start a round. So it's a, it's a slippery slope. From my perspective, from a teaching perspective, it's much different. But from my perspective of helping guys when they're performing, play with freedom and enjoy themselves, I think stats can sometimes get in the way. All right, now back to Kevin. Kevin, what do you do to help people create freedom? I mean, what, how do you free people up to move the needle? What do you do to help somebody to figure out to move the needle? Well, I think that you start kind of looking at, at you know, sabermetrics as a, as a, let's say, a science. There's a, there's a lot of different ways you can, you can skin the cat there, right? There's, you know, I, Doc and I were talking earlier today about, about different ways that you can use sabermetrics, and I think if you started looking at, at the shots gained yourself on tour, that's, that's interesting, you know, to some extent because it allows you to figure out where you rank against the other players. That said, I've had more success being able to kind of find, you know, figure out the, the level a player wants to play at and find out the benchmarks that go with that so that they understand what good is. Because part of the confusion about, about being a good coach is to be able to figure out what's good enough. Now, I will tell you that most of the elite players I've been around, you know, they'll fall on the sword because they think that, you know, if it's not flush right over the middle of the flag exactly right at it, you know, it's that it's no good. But what we do know about it, about it is that tour variance is five percent of the distance. That's a that's a fairly large margin of error, right, over the course of a year. 
Is, so the, the problem that, I, that I, I get into in terms of stacking them up against the field, it doesn't really matter how they rank up against the field. If they're trying to play at a certain level, if they know I've got to be this good with the putter, I've got to be this good around the greens, I've got to be this good out of the bunker, this is what my approach shots need to look like, and this is what my, my tee shots need, the benchmarks for that, and be accountable to that, I think that's a better way to use statistics. Because then you get into the question, well, where does it end? You can always keep getting better and better and better, but where does it end? But if you establish your own benchmarks, work towards those, that's, that's a much better approach. So if you can establish the benchmarks, right, and build the training protocols around that, you can actually train people to do it. So here's one, th- one of the things that I've found. If I have a, a, a let's say, the, the benchmark is for a player to get the ball up and down 70% of the time around the green, which is, which is a tour benchmark, right? Say that again. So a tour level benchmark, for the guys on tour, 70% of the fairways, 70% of the greens, 70% up and down, 50 to 60 out of the bunker, and 29 putts, that, get, that gets you the tour championship every year. Okay, and it's been that way forever. So if 70% of is, uh, is the up and down, you know, uh, let's say benchmark for a tour player, one of the things that I found in practice, they have to perform about 10% better than that before it's a transfer. So we actually set the benchmarks in practice. Okay, let's go play 10 holes. I, I drop the line, the lies, eight of 10 is the goal. Let's go see if we can, pull, we can do it. And we train to that. And, and once they get to the point where they can do that, all of a sudden we start seeing it show up in competition. So being able to take a benchmark, figure out what, what do I have to do to be able to kind of train, make that trainable and transferable, then I think you've got something. Right? I'm going to steal that. You can borrow it. It's all yours. I mean, (laughs) once again, the Rick Lamb. I have a question, too, for the coaches. Go ahead. I have players who perform much better in competition than they do in practice because they're much more dialed in. They're much more engaged. In practice, they have a very hard time getting up to get better. And what do you do with those guys? That's hard. Because there are guys like that, too. And we, we know guys. We work with guys who... You know, they're practicing, and they're goofing around, and they're playing practice rounds, and they're playing horribly, and then they go out in competition, bang, they're dialed in. The guy that I used to help me with my stats is a guy named Stuart Leong. He's from Australia. He's got a company called Shots to Hold. And he has the capacity with his, with his stat program to be able to say, okay, let's say that there's a there's a value that, that, we, that we're seeing in competition that's not matching up with the benchmark. He has a capacity with, with just simply a cursor to kind of slide that over and say, is that going to make a difference or not? How much of a difference is that going to make if he closes that delta, if he manages that delta, if he closes that gap, right? So having a tool like that, all of a sudden you can say, okay, is this even worth us pursuing it, right? So, but kind of going back to it, I think the idea there is, is that if it's, if it's something's happening in competition, you can start asking the questions, okay, is it a tech, technical error, is it a tactical error, I mean, is it bad decision making? What do we need to do to help you? Because it could be just nothing more than they're, they're bringing that awareness, okay, when you go out here, I need to be more mindful in this specific area. Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero here, host of the Tour Coach Podcast. Thanks to our great sponsors, Shrixon Golf and Bushnell Golf, we're working to help spread the word about the Tour Coach and get more people to download and get more people to listen to it. I have so many DMs every week from golfers, from teachers, just people that are passionate about the game of golf that love our authentic, our raw approach. It's unproduced. It's just natural. It's from my travels, teaching and working on the PGA Tour, teaching at our retreats, just conversations with the very best in the world of golf. And we want more people to know about it. So Shrixon and Cleveland Golf and Bushnell and I have teamed up to give away some stuff. And here's what you have to do to win and help spread the word about the Tour Coach. All you have to do is go on to Apple iTunes and give a review of the Tour Coach 
then screenshot it, and then post it on Instagram or Twitter and tag Shrixon and Bushnell and myself at the Dew Sweeper on Instagram or at Dew Sweeper Golf on Twitter. And what I'm going to do weekly is draw from those people that tag me on social media, as well as Bushnell and Shrixon. And I'm going to do drawings for Wingman's, Dew Sweeper Books, new Shrixon golf balls and wedges. We're going to give away a ton of stuff each week over the next month. So spread the word about the tour coach, give a review, screenshot it, and post it on your social media channels and tag me at the Dew Sweeper and at Dew Sweeper Golf. And we're going to be spreading the word and spreading the love and helping people play better golf. I think the best thing is stats, and I don't do it as much as you for sure. I use stats as just a guideline to tell me, like, to highlight areas that we might need to pay more attention to, right? If, you know, if it's not good enough, then you need to handle it. Right? If they're not driving it good enough, you need to ask why, right? So I had a chance to kind of work with one of the top female players in the world. No need to put dragging her name into it, right? But I was brought into her because she was struggling with her putting. So I had my pal pull up at least whatever he could, and there's not, there was not much data on the women. It turns out this girl can hit it a mile, right? And uh, her putting performance was indeed not great. I took her through a putting screen, and she performed beautifully. And I'm like, so I, but going back and look at the data, the data told me that she, the way she played is she bombed it off the tee, she hit it way down there, right? But she hit it in the rough a lot. Now what happens when the ball goes in the rough, the proximity doubles. Okay, that's just a mathematical truth. So, so let's say a shot from 100 yards, instead of, the, instead of being able to kind of hit it in there, let's say 5% of the distance Robert for her, gets it to 15 feet, she's now at 30 feet. Tell me which one. Now she she, she, she also didn't have a good enough short game to to be able to kind of support what she was trying to do. So she, anytime there's a the pin on the edge of the green, she hit in the middle of the green. So her putting wasn't bad. She was putting from too far from the hole. Right, right. So so I said, okay, here's the way we're gonna address this. Okay, you're gonna be mindful of this idea that that, that you got to put the ball in the fairway. Every time you hit in the rough, it's a 60 yard penalty. It's a half a shot every time you do it. All right. So be mindful of where you position and put in the tee off the tee. You can, you can, I want you to take on more pins and we're gonna work on your chipping. Your putting's fine. And she went from like eighth in the world to number two in the world. That's, that's another really good use of stats. But like all this stuff where, you know, every, and I worked with a player a year ago at his best year, whatever. You know, everything was like, oh, all the numbers tell me I just hit it as far as I can down there. Everything's, I mean, if you hit it way down there and you're out of the rough every time, I don't think that's always the best. I really don't. And I know that's old school. But there has to be a tipping point where if you hit it so far down the I mean, I get that if you're... But, well, so, and so Bryson's performance at the U.S. Open right, so brought that in. But he chipped and pitched. I, I, we saw that, but the average golfer did All right, so I got, I'm going to speak to that, all right? Good. All right. The math would suggest this, that every time the ball goes in the rough, the proximity doubles. Yeah, that's right? interesting. So, so now all of a sudden, um, at 100 yards, it goes 5% of the of the distance, right? Is, would be a, would be a tour average, right? So now all of a sudden, instead of kind of playing from, let's say, 100 yards out of, the, out of the fairway, they're playing from 100 yards out of the rough. If you do the mathematical equivalent, it's 160 out of the fairway. So it's a 60-yard penalty every time it happens. So the problem is, is that 30 yards behind their maximum distance off the tee, their birdie production is 50% higher. 
Right. That's interesting. Okay, so that's the math. Yeah. Now let's talk about the U.S. Open. That I was up there. We were over a lot yeah. of much rough. The fairways at at Wing at, at uh, where were we? Wingfoot. It was Wingfoot. Yeah. Wingfoot were so hard and so fast yeah. that when the ball would kind of hit the fairway, it wouldn't hold the fairway. I think Lucas drove, led, led driving that week he at fifty nine percent. Right. An average week, the leading driver is at eighty five percent. He was in the top. You know, he was in the top ten or twelve going last day. Yeah. So if everybody's in the rough, and he still which is what was happening, rough, right? Okay. Now all of a sudden that that, that distance equivalent make, makes a difference. Right. So that was the, the the off week where that was the advantage. Exactly right. So that was just a that was a kind of a you know it was so a, that's an outlier. Good, the average golfer doesn't know that. Right. No. But well, then last year at San Diego, the fairways were not as firm. And the and rough wasn't as down. No, and the rough wasn't, wasn't as down, but there was more penalty for hitting in the rough. And, I mean, you didn't have... Well, I'll tell you where the ruts... The, 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 at the U.S. Open last year, where his penal was around the green, the fairway, the fairway rough wasn't too yeah. bad, but around the you greens it was awful. Yeah. So I do think that, you know, if you if you dig deep enough into it and can understand what they're trying to tell you, I think they're very useful. But, they, but to your point, just a, just a sweep over the top, I'd like, I'd like Scott to weigh in on this conversation. He, I mean, he's obviously a bright guy. Also, you know, unless some of the other guys, panelists kind of talk here about kind of what we're up to. But, I mean, you sure I got some thoughts on it. And so, so, so what, what do you think? From what Greg was saying, stats to temper expectations. Because I work with college kids sometimes. You think you should be hitting it 10 feet from the hole every time for 150 yards. And I'm like, no, man, 20 feet's really good. Most people just don't get it. Right. And so I think a lot of times if you're in a better mood when you get over the ball, like if you hit it and you're in a better mood over the putt because you're like, ah, that wasn't a bad shot, you're more likely to make the putt. Whereas if you get over that ball and you're like, I hit it to 20 feet, I suck, then you're going to miss the putt and then it's going to snowball. And so... I think using stats to temper expectations. This game's really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I, mean, <laughs> I agree. That's, that's, that's my favorite quote. <laughs> Golf is hard. That's his whole speech. <laughs> I mean, he charges people a lot per month to tell them. Wayne, what do you think true. about stats? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I try to get my guys to pay attention to what they're doing. But I think, you know, if we circle all the way back around to where we started, with club level golfers and all the way up to tour players, I think if you can get them more disciplined in their practice, doing the same thing, the one or two or three things that really matter to their games that will help them, I think if you can get regular golfers to do that more, I think they have a chance to get a lot better because tour players do that, like you said, Justin Thomas, three drills for the same putting thing for six years. Well. He's great at those drills, and when he misses a putt, he recaptures the feel of what he needs to do to continue to be a great putter. And I have I have players, high school players, college players, and even mini tour guys that they'll do something and they'll do it for a week, and they think, well, I got it. Well, they they don't have it. They got better at doing it, but they don't have it. And you know, for your club level golfers, and they'll do it for three, four shots, and they think they got it. Well, they for sure don't have it. And when the wheels fall out off on the golf course, they make triple bogey, triple bogey, double bogey, triple bogey. Well, their round's ruined. It's it's done at that point. There's nothing they can do to save it because they don't have the firepower to make enough birdies like a tour player does or or whatever. So I think I think if you can if you can get your players, whatever level they're at, to be more mindful of how to practice the one or two, three really important things, get them to get really really good at it to where they can recapture. The magic, so to speak, when they lose it on the golf course, I think they can perform better, and I think their stats will show it. I think their, you know, their handicaps will go from 18 down to 12, or from 12 down to five, and you know they'll be better players, and college players will do better, and mini tour players 
may have a chance to get their card and guys that have their card they may have a chance to get in that tour championship you know so i think i think it's the same thing it's just more important you know the deeper it gets into playing for a living i mean because they're playing for a living i mean whenever you're messing with somebody's livelihood it's pretty dang important i think so i'm real careful there and try to be real real That's careful real in our business real patient you know i mean because it's that's a big deal. People's livelihood's a big deal. So, Kevin, um, the topic we should have had was that one you had that night about should there be ethics rules in our business. That's yeah. the, that'll be next week. Yeah. <laughs> no, a bunch of wouldn't pass. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think he nailed that, though, like kind of circling back. Like it's about discipline, knowing what – and I just think our job, whether it's using Scott or Greg or bringing you guys in and – you jumped in and helped me with Jillian last week, and you know I just think it's about like we were we were saying the same thing, but find, saying it different ways. But you know, staying disciplined to the couple things a person needs to do. And I've never seen a good player, and I've never seen a good player and a good teacher work where every time a ball was hit, they were shooting from the hip trying something different. I did go watch a guy one time with a track man, and I brought a couple players. And, like, every time they were looking at the number and the guy was shouting something different, well, try this, try that. It's like we got in the car, we are driving back, and the player said to me, if you ever take me to that again, I'll fire you. <laughs> right? And I was just trying to get some track band in, folks. I didn't know much about it. Right? But, like, I just have never seen that be constructive, and I think that's a good lesson. Circling back on that, I think that start kind of looking at it really at, at players – most players have a signature about the way they want them. They, you know, they've, they've got thousands of hours of, of time logged in their brain about doing it a certain way. So part of that is us respecting that. I mean, I tell the story about Jim Furyk. I mean, I, I watched Jim Furyk at the, at the Ryder Cup, you know, just destroy a bunch of guys. It, it, I mean, he was the best, clearly one of the best players there. The guy's broken 60 twice. You know, he's, he's, won the, you know, he's won everything he could possibly win. I mean, of the guys he grew up with, there's, you know, there's... I, maybe one one or two people that played any better than him and nothing that he does looks like golf i would have ruined him for sure <laughs> as an early coach i swear to god i would have ruined him yeah don't be so hard on yourself most people would yeah but 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 you know he but watching him taught me that you know something take some time figure out if, if they're competent golf is about competence it's not about it's not about you know anything except can you handle the task that's put in front of you at a high enough rate to allow you to shoot the scores you want to shoot. And so it's if we can focus more on competence, try to allow for individuality, not feel like we gotta put our fingerprints on everybody and, and give them some room to breathe, you can you can help people. It's one of the best compliments I ever had was early, I don't know, a couple years in. It's very rare. But um, somebody said to me that you know, that Lucas was swinging like Lucas could tell I'd been working with him, right? just didn't jump in and start changing everything you know and I think one of the best compliments a teacher can get is when you got four or five players and they all their swings look different right I think one of the worst things anybody can say about is somebody said oh I knew that guy was working with so-and-so because that's what all their swings look like right a lot of different ways to skin the cat out there as we talked about but I, I think that I can I can sit here and tell you that I, I, I do believe that it's really about it's a lot more about competence and making allowances for people to do their own thing. And if you're good enough at something already, then who am I to say it's wrong? Right. I've got to learn how you do it well and make sure that you stay in that pattern and keep doing that. If you can't do it, we'll ask some questions and we can start that question process to try to figure out 
what you know what do we want to do about it? Is, is it a perception problem you're just not aware of something or do we need to actually make a change is it, I mean we can start asking the questions to try to kind of get to the bottom of it and always choose the least invasive thing you can do to help somebody right all right What's the least invasive thing I can do here, right? I also think there's a difference between coaching tour players and these guys who are trying to get a lot better. Tour players were trying to figure out why they're already good and what can we tweak to do because they're already great or they wouldn't have a tour card or they wouldn't be playing for a living. Todd Green's already really good, going to play Canada. Like, what can I do to enhance that? These guys, I'm trying to get them all to be able to break par, right? But skill sets are different than what you said, like, the hours logged are different, right? So it's a different deal. I think it's a different type of coaching. Greg, come on, give us some parting shots here. We got about a minute or two left. You and Wayne. I don't know. I think I might be done. Well, again, that just circles. You know, when you're just when you're trying to get your <laughs> it's time to eat. When you're trying to get your average golfers better, I mean, they've got to pay more and more attention to the the little things that they they think are not as important. Right. The tour players, they've already got those things mastered. And because they have a master, they continue to pay very close attention to them. Our, our job as coaches for average golfers, your country club level golfers, is to try to get them to understand the one or two or three things that really, really matter to their golf games and get them to pay close attention to them. And when they come back and they say they haven't been hitting balls with their alignment sticks or whatever the case may be, our job is to get them back on that and help them enjoy the game more. So. You know, it's as simple as it can be, but not everybody teaches just 12 tour players. You know, we all teach a lot of regular golfers too. And, and uh, you know, our job is to really make them understand how important those little things are to their game and, and their ability to cut their handicaps in half and, and play better golf. So I think that's, that's an important thing for all coaches, especially young guys. And this is why golf is so interesting in that the average golfer or the club golfer can look on TV and watch a tour pro and say, I can, I've done what they've done at one point. I've hit that shot or I've made that putt. And that we always hold ourselves to that, the Don't highest expectation. That's why people like the U.S. Open. They like seeing people make bogeys. Yeah, they like bit. seeing people yeah. make doubles. But there's no other sport like, like that. Like a group of club level golfers don't register with what happened in Hawaii the first week. Right. Right? Right. Thank you. Guys, um, this is an awesome place. Kevin, thanks for the opportunity to bring everybody down here. We're so excited to have you guys. You and Rick been awesome. Wayno, thanks for joining me down here again. Me and you got to get a condo down here probably. Always fun, T. Um, Greg, just wait till I show you the South Beach nightlife. I've got a new outfit I'm aware. Doc, thanks for bringing all the swing catalyst stuff and all the support as always. And Todd, Julio, good stuff. So come join us down here in South Beach. We'll have some fun. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors, Shrikshan, Buick, Bushnell, and Vineyard Vines, for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube, as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, or go to dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about me.